Is it wonderful to hear God's word? I've done a lot of preparing, but um, just hearing God's word, you just realise how that's just supreme, isn't it? So good morning again. Thank you uh, for the opportunity to share some of what God's been showing me, both generally in his word, uh, but also specifically through this passage of the rich young man in Matthew 19. As I shared last week, I made uh, two sermons out of this passage which required an arbitrary sort of decision about where to make the split. We've already had a really good look at obey the commandments and what love your neighbour as yourself looks like. My inspired wife has responded to love your neighbour by deciding to uh, organise a street barbecue, something she's been talking about for about 10 years. And it may not be, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, but uh, we're doing it. This week, uh, we pick up again at the place where the young man says, all these I have kept, but what do I still lack? Whilst the young man thinks that he's kept all the commandments, he's apparently left a little bit uneasy uh, with the conviction of of his own inadequacy uh, for gaining salvation and also, secondly, that following the law and commandments has somehow not been quite enough. There is, of course, the question whether he has truly satisfied all of the commandments, in fact, whether any of us ever really do. So while I've made this arbitrary split uh, in this passage, it needs to be emphasised that this passage of teaching of Jesus belongs very much together. And I hope to show how it does. But first, let's pray. Lord Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you, dear Lord, that you talk to us. We thank you, dear Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you inspire us and you call us to act. And we pray this morning that what we read in your word would show us Uh, how we are to put these things into practice in our lives. We ask this through your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. A few less people here than there were last week. I'm not going to let that put me off. And Mel's beeping. That's not going to put me off either. So the young man asks out of genuine conviction, what do I still lack? To which Jesus replies verse 21 go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come follow me what was the young man's response when the young man heard this he went away sad because he had great wealth seems a little bit abrupt doesn't it there's actually no indication of what happens to this young man did he sell everything he had and give to the poor Uh, Or did he go off and cry bitterly when he understood what Jesus was declaring uh, and then possibly follow Jesus later? Well, we don't know. But in a sense, uh, it also doesn't matter because what Jesus is teaching here continues on uh, as he turns to his disciples and in so doing, he directs his teaching to the reader, which, which is us. I want to come back to this burdened young man in a moment, but let's just complete this important exchange between Jesus and his listeners. Jesus has compassion for the man 
acknowledging the obstacle that wealth presents to a truly humble and self-surrendering faith. Verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone to rich, sorry, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Like ScoMo in Parliament, I have a prop. It's a needle. Can you see the needle? What about the eye of the needle? Clarky, I can't even see it with my glasses either. So let's pretend this piano over here is a camel. Most camels are larger than that piano, right? Now, some commentators over the years have tried to resolve the difficulty of getting a camel through the eye of the needle by speculating about a small wooden gate in an obscure corner of Jerusalem known as the needle's eye. Let's just think that through. So you're driving along, or in this case riding a camel, and your wife, your child, or your mother-in-law, doesn't matter who, someone says, I don't know, that gate looks a bit small, I don't think you'll get through there. Guys, let's be honest, we're going to give it a crack, right? Aren't we? Well, what about this example? Honey, I think those jeans might be a few sizes too small. All right, bad example, let's not use that. (laughs) But seriously, is Jesus saying here, it's a bit of a challenge, but those of you who have extra strong kind of abilities or who are really self-reliant, you might get there. What's the text say? Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? It sounds like they thought it can't be done. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Even Peter seems to have accepted that it can't be done. Remember Peter? He's the, one, he's the man of action who says, no way Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And he also lunges forward, with a with a sword and cuts off the temple guard's ear. Even that Peter seems to be astonished and accepts that it can't be done. He says, this is Peter, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Verse 29, Jesus replies, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. There is, by the way, still uh, no conclusive evidence uh, between scholars about that wooden gate. So maybe, in fact, it's safer for us to believe what Jesus says, that with man it's impossible. Let's go back to the rich young ruler who went away sad. This needs to be teased out a little bit more. Like Peter... This uh, young man appears to be a doer. He comes to Jesus, or in Mark's account, it actually says he ran up and fell on his knees before him, saying, what must I do? Jesus' initial response is, follow the commandments and love your neighbour as yourself, which seems like a bit of a general answer. And last week we had a good look at how hard it is to actually love our neighbour as ourselves and how poor we actually are at actually doing that. 
But Jesus doesn't judge and when pressed further, his ultimate answer, his deeper response is go sell your possessions and give to the poor, then come follow me. Well, that doesn't actually sound that impossible, does it? Sell your house, your land, your business, give all your money away to your favourite charity. So what's going on? You see, I don't believe that the problem lay in go sell your possessions and give to the poor. I think the problem lays in then come follow me. In fact, the difficulty of that, the burden of that sort of ethic, come follow me, is just as challenging to us today as it was back then. Why? Because it's actually less about what we must do and it's more about who we're called to be. Why is that so hard for us? As I think it through, I reckon that selling our house and our cars, emptying, you know, writing some checks and emptying our bank accounts and blowing all our super, I reckon I could have that done by the end of the week. But what about the consequences of that? It's kind of likely that those consequences will go past the end of the week, won't they? Let's think about the life of this young man. Do you think that this rich young man of influence goes to the market before sunrise to get his food for the day? Do you think he has to haggle uh, in the market, risking being ripped off or possibly ripping someone else off in the process? Being wealthy and influential, he has others to do that for him, doesn't he? Or do you think he might be out in the field in the hot sun all day working, doing extra hours without pay and being treated unfairly? I don't think so. Or maybe would he be evicted from his rental by a greedy or unfair landlord? Probably not. It's more likely, in fact, that he is a landlord and that he has people in his employ to do that dirty work for him. I know it's a little bit of speculation, but for the sake of what I'm trying to say, let's just uh, go with it. So here's what I'm thinking. Being wealthy provides layers of comfort and protection for us. Protection from what? From the harshness of life and the myriad unpleasant things that happen to us every day. The little sins and evils, or indeed some of the bigger evils that happen to us and through us every single day why do they happen because we're broken people living in a broken world that's why i'm being quite purposeful here in using the word sin and evil if we are as we understand scripture if we are willing to concede that we sin then we need to also concede that we participate in evil Uh, often without really intending to, sometimes at the receiving end and sometimes actually causing it. Last week I showed that when we make ourselves the focus, when we change God's precepts to somehow advantage ourselves, then this usually means disadvantage for somebody else, doesn't it? In God's language, that quite simply amounts to sin and evil. Not always, but often. Now I think it's important to talk through our understanding of wealth and possessions, whether it's sinful or a blessing to be wealthy and to have things. Um, The very foundation of Israel is rooted in the Mosaic Covenant 
which in simple terms forms a contract. A covenant is a, a form of a contract. As with any contract, there are clauses about the benefits of carrying out contract stipulations, but also clauses about what the consequences are for breaking the contract, or in this case, the covenant. Uh, Old Testament scholars refer to the retribution principle, um, where uh, the seminal text is Deuteronomy 28, which lists the blessings for obedience to the covenant, and in contrast, curses for disobedience. Interestingly, the other day when I had a read, the blessings are on one page, but the curses go on for quite a few pages. uh, I hadn't noticed it quite that way before. So this theme of God's blessing or retribution is woven right throughout the Old Testament, but it's particularly strong in Psalms and Proverbs and, uh, and wisdom literature. Proverbs 3 verses 5 to 10 is actually a really beautiful example and it makes for a really nice memory verse let me just read that trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight do not be wise in your own eyes fear the lord and shun evil this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones Honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Blessings for obedience. But there's a problem uh, with the way we think about this because it can create a corollary. I'll say that word a few more times. A corollary whereby we flip this on its head and quite simplistically assume that anyone who's blessed and prosperous, well, they must be righteous and deserving. And anyone who's suffering or poor, well, they must be wicked. In simple terms, that's a form of the prosperity teaching that's been doing the rounds in recent decades, isn't it? But it's not that straightforward, is it? We only have to live a few years in this world and to look around to see that righteousness doesn't equate to material wealth as much as that might be a gospel that really appeals to our senses. Indeed, as we look through the Bible's wisdom literature, such as Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms and Prophets, uh, some of the prophets, we find that enjoying God's blessings as a whole has a lot more to do with contentment relationship and obedience to God than it does with having money, comfort and power. Psalm 37, which, uh, which Chris read, actually bears it out really well. Um, it, it depends what filter you read that with. You can read it with a filter of, hey, let's see what I can get out of this and you could walk down the prosperity path or you can read it with a filter of, well, what's my correct response to God here? And all of a sudden... Uh, it looks quite different. So it's not that simple to just conclude that anyone who's wealthy is obviously blessed by God. Certainly being honest, working hard, doing our best at the opportunities that are presented, being sensible with our money, paying bills on time and generously supporting people around us who are in need, well, these are all endorsed by Scripture as good life choices, aren't they? And experience tells us that doing these sensible things results generally in having a more functional life, including a more functional financial life. That too is endorsed by scripture in the Bible. 
But the corollary of the retribution principle cannot stand. Wealthy people cannot automatically be assumed to be blessed by God and the poor people cannot be automatically assumed to be punished by God. There are several really important reasons why this can't be true and I'll just mention a few. One is that today as we look around we see so much greed, dishonesty, unfairness and slavery in our world and the wealth that this creates for some people would then be an endorsement from God uh, for their greed and dishonesty. But God doesn't endorse that, does he? So this prosperity kind of thinking just can't stand. Another reason, and I think this is a really important one, is for the sake of God's sovereignty. What do I mean? Well, let's just apply a bit of logic here. If it's true that doing certain things automatically leads to rewards... And if it's true that those rewards come to us predictably every time, then I can determine for myself precisely what I need to do to earn my rewards. Where does God fit into that? Aren't I now in charge of my own rewards, in control? Do I even need God anymore? Or what about the usefulness of prayer? If everything we do is predetermined by some sort of mechanistic formula, then how can that which is predestined by that formula ever change? A few weeks ago, Jared reminded us of the importance of of prayer and the power of prayer, uh, both our need to pray and the wondrous ways in which God answers those prayers. Now, we can call these answers miracles or provision or whatever we want, The fact is that God intervenes in wondrous ways, sometimes in very unexpected ways and often in mysterious ways. My point is that this world and our lives don't just tick-tock along in a predictable formula fashion uh, as if it's some sort of wind-up clock. I can pray for God to intervene, but I can't be pulling strings and make God do my bidding as if he was some sort of a puppet on strings. Sometimes things happen that are so completely opposite that we just can't understand them. But God is always in control. God is always sovereign. Ecclesiastes has got a couple of verses here. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, 14. Just read something out there which I think fits. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. And then we skip to verse 17. Then I saw all that God had done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. The classic story in the Old Testament is of Job, and that bears out uh, very well how things happen that we don't understand, but God remains in control. Having read Job again the other day, I'm humbly reminded of the importance of searching out God's word just to keep our thinking of such things straight. God is always in control. God is always sovereign. So where are we at? 
Is being wealthy evil? Is having stuff or the means to pay for stuff? Is that bad? On its own, I would say, certainly not. Indeed, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus availing himself of various benefactors who had the means to be generous. Like uh, John chapter 12, where Jesus drops in on his friends Lazarus, Mary and Martha and Bethany, uh, where there is a big dinner held in his honour. And then we read about Mary pouring expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. This perfume was apparently worth a year's wages. So there must have been some means there. Or when Jesus goes to Peter's house, Matthew chapter 8, and heals his mother-in-law, which I'm sure he was very grateful for. And then she waits on him and presumably others. So Peter has a wife, possibly children, um, but Peter spends his time following Jesus. There must be some sort of means by which Peter can afford to do that. And then there's the large upper room, furnished and ready, Mark chapter 14, where the Last Supper takes place. This same room then also becomes the meeting place in Acts chapter 12, where the early believers meet. This was the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, the uh, accepted author of the Gospel of Mark. So they clearly had some means, didn't they? So having wealth to some degree on its own is not a problem. Money isn't bad, just like power and influence isn't bad, or sex or food or anything else that God has created. It's just that we find ways of misusing it, don't we? I think our problem is that having means comes with hooks, little hooks or even bigger hooks like power or self-reliance or pride and selfishness and so on. The message of Jesus, indeed the message of most of the Bible is that that these things are kind of bad for us. And they're not just bad for us, they're also bad for others if we're truly going to love our neighbours as ourselves. Addressing these, um, these issues is actually quite hard work. Why? Let's face it, we like being comfortable, don't we? The problem with being comfortable is that, well, I've already mentioned two. One is that it can come at the price of someone else's suffering. Um, and the other important one is that being comfortable can be a distraction from being made right with God our Father. Remember I said that we like to buffer ourselves and protect ourselves from the hardships of life physically. Well, I propose that we do that uh, spiritually as well, not just physically. Why? Because we're inclined to keep things under our own control and not to hand it over to someone else. In this case, God the Father. A key hurdle here is being poor in spirit, as Ray uh, talked to us a few weeks ago from the Beatitudes. There's an illustration that's sometimes used that our lives are like a big old house with many rooms and many spaces. When we invite Jesus into our lives, we're sort of giving him access and permission to that house. But do we actually give him access to every room in that house? What about those dark, messy and scary rooms? There might even be some putrid and shameful ones. These rooms may look different for each of us, but we all have them. 
I have no idea what they are for you. I have some idea what they are for me. But God, our Father, he knows it all. Are we willing to invite Jesus into all of those rooms? Are we willing to look honestly at the obstacles, the layers of comfort and control that Jesus asks us to relinquish? That's what being poor in spirit actually means. And that's what I think this passage is about. We are aware innately of the need to be right with God and we want to know what we can do as if there was some way that we could buy our salvation through works or in our own strength somehow follow all of the law and commandments. But with man, this is impossible. There's actually only one thing left to do and that's to throw ourselves at God's mercy and to relinquish. In Jesus' words, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Brothers and sisters, this is really, really challenging stuff. For some of us, this might in fact mean selling everything and removing ourselves from the wealth and the money that separates us from God. For others, it might in fact mean walking away from sort of some sort of executive uh, lifestyle of power and influence or something else, or some other pursuit, whether it's sport or car racing or whatever, sailing, anything that distracts us from God's economy, putting other things in the place which only God should be occupying in our lives. Sure, truly following Jesus might mean discomfort. It might have us more exposed to the brokenness and the harshness of this world. And verses like Matthew 8 Uh, verse 18 where Jesus talks about the cost of following him those verses don't really make it any easier let's be honest but those comforts those areas of control which insulate us from the harshness and difficulties of life well guess what they're actually only useful in this life you know what else life is short every day Our life is one day shorter, no matter how old or young we are. Eternity, on the other hand, it's kind of long. In fact, it goes on forever, doesn't it? That's what eternity means. This challenge to the rich young man is the same challenge that's put before us today. The response of this convicted young man was to walk away. It seemed too hard for him, even though, in a sense we can see that he seems to have understood the gravity of what Jesus was saying. What is our response? Are we willing to let Jesus strip away those things that bind us to his life, this life, to relinquish and then come follow him? This passage has uh, occupied me for about six weeks, three weeks as a university assignment, and three weeks uh, for these sermons. You've now been listening to me for about 60 minutes over the last two weeks. But I had a bit of a moment of clarity the other day. If there's nothing else that we remember of this passage, here are some high points. The man says, what good thing must I do to, uh, to inherit, sorry, to get eternal life? I guess it depends on Uh, which interpretation what must i do to get eternal life jesus says keep the commandments be perfect 
Man says, all these I have kept. Really? Has he? Have we? Man asks, well, what do I still lack? Jesus answers, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Do we walk away sad, or do we come and follow Jesus? That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the good news. How do we respond? Let's pray. Lord Father, we do throw ourselves at your feet, Lord. We know in ourselves, of ourselves, um, we're just just not going to make it. Lord Father, we thank you that you have presented us with a glorious gospel, a glorious good news of salvation by which we throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and come and follow him. Lord Father, thank you for that good news. Thank you, Lord, that you call us even today to consider what that means and what sort of life you call us to live. Lord Father, I pray that we live the sort of life that is pleasing to you, but more importantly, that we can share this gospel with with a dark and messy world that desperately needs to hear the good news of salvation. Lord Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you that you um, that you challenge us through it. And we ask, Lord, you continue to do so and we pray, Lord, that glory would be brought to you and your name through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.